Good morning. All right, there you are. So first Sunday, two services. This is the first ever 11 a.m. service for Mosaic. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've been a part of the Mosaic community at all for like the last several months, uh, you know very well that we've been kind of at this point of, well, being ridiculously full. And there's been a number of Sundays where, you know, we're over fire capacity in this room and standing room only and overflowing over here, uh, which is great. It's a great problem. I have to tell you, as trying to create um, life in this space, like that helps a lot, you know, Um, creates a lot of momentum. Uh, But as great as it is for us, and, and to see everybody who's a part of the Mosaic community under one roof at the same time, uh, the reality is, is that being in that place um, is very uh, limiting, in a sense. And, and especially for as a church that exists for people who are far from Christ, who don't know God, who are spiritually searching, um, we just came to a point where we realized, you know, this is not okay. As great as it is, as exciting as it is, um, the reality is, like, I have friends and neighbors and people that I'm praying for, and I love that there's just not a seat for them. And I know the same is true for you, too. And so for us, we decided, you know what, we're just going to take a shot and, and go to two services because we need to create more space. And so there's almost like maybe, I don't know about for you, but for me, there's almost a little bit of a sense of loss uh, because not everybody's here. That's a part of the Mosaic community right now. Um, there's some faces that now you won't get to see every single Sunday like you did before. But it's also, at the same time, very exciting. Exciting in the sense that every single open seat that you see throughout here represents a soul and somebody in our city who needs Jesus, somebody that you know, perhaps, friends, family, neighbors. And so for us, more important than our own comfort, our own excitement, our own whatever we would prefer uh, is God doing an extraordinary work in their life and them coming to know the life and the grace and the forgiveness that's in Jesus Christ. Amen? So that being said, um, I'm excited about this morning to be pulling the trigger on it and uh, creating more space for God to continue to change lives through this community. Uh, this morning, so this morning we're starting a new journey uh, together, and uh, not just in going to two services, but in starting a new teaching series, uh, a series that we're entitling Perhaps, Perhaps. And the series, uh, next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a story, a story in the life of Israel at a time when Saul was king. And that story is found in 1 Samuel chapters 13, 14. And uh, Saul is king, and, and Jonathan is his son, and truth be known, it's not one of their better moments. Um, Saul was just one of those guys that always seemed disconnected from what God was trying to do in his life. He, was, he just seemed to be one of those people that was always on a different page than God. He was always resistant, it seemed, to what God wanted to do in his life and through his life. And we find in this particular story that they are at war with the Philistines. And not only are they at war, but they're terribly outnumbered. It tells us the Philistines have 3,000 chariots, uh, 6,000 horsemen, and soldiers as numerous as the sands of the sea. And Saul is left with just 600 men. The odds are not good. To make matters worse, uh, the, the Israel's army, when they saw the odds that were stacked against them, decided they, many of them decided they didn't want any part of this particular battle. And so a number of them ran. It tells us that some of them ran and, uh, up into the mountains and actually hid in caves uh, where they remained uh, just paralyzed by fear. It tells us that others of them ran home to be with their wives and their families, hoping that somebody else would step up and fight for their cause, protect them, defend them. And it tells us that others still actually betrayed Israel, betrayed their own people, and decided to fight for the Philistines because they would rather 
fight for the side that they thought would win rather than the side that they thought should win. You ever been there? Right, you ever know people like that who would rather be in a place where they are getting what they want, perhaps maybe doing rather than doing what's right? And this is where they're at. And make matters worse, Israel is out of weapons. It tells that Israel is down to two swords. Two swords, not good odds. One of them belongs to Saul because he's the king, right? And one of them belongs to Jonathan because he's the king's son, right? Sometimes it, it matters who you know, right? Not so much what you know. And this is where they're at. And, and to make matters even worse, the only people close enough who can make weapons are the Philistines themselves, who they're at war with. So Israel's trying to hire the Philistines to make them weapons to fight them with. And while the Philistines are evil, uh, they're not stupid. So they took their time. Saul was in no hurry. Thousands of chariots, thousands of horsemen, thousands and thousands of soldiers. And it tells us at this particular time, Saul decides that what he needs to do in this moment is to lay down and take a nap underneath a pomegranate tree. He needs to lay down and sleep. Ever been there? We're just overwhelmed by life, the stresses, the demands, and you just need to check out for a while. Right, maybe for you, when you find yourself in those moments, you go home and turn on the TV and watch endless reruns of Arrested Development. Right? It wouldn't be a bad choice, necessarily, if I do say so myself. Maybe for you, uh, part of that, when you find yourself in those situations, you live for the weekends right, and go down to the club or the bar. Right? Or maybe for you, you're like Saul, and life gets overwhelming and stressed, and, and you just lay down and go to sleep. Right? Or, or maybe for you, your pomegranate tree is, is getting into a, kind of a drunken stupor right? and drinking way more than you should or getting into a meaningless relationship, one that you know you shouldn't be in. Anything to block out the pain. Anything to disconnect from the reality of your life in that moment. This is where Saul is at. And it tells us that in this moment that Saul decides that what he needs to do is to lay down and sleep under a pomegranate tree. But Jonathan, it tells us, wakes up. Jonathan, his son, wakes up. And it doesn't tell us why he wakes up. I wish it did. You know, maybe he just woke up because he had something bad to eat and there's indigestion going on and couldn't sleep. It's possible. Right? Maybe he was so restless at this great need that stood before him and nobody was doing anything. Have you ever been there where there, there's just this impending need, there's something that needs to be done, and you know that somebody should act, somebody should do something, but perhaps you lack the courage to be that someone, to choose to engage? Or maybe, maybe God woke him up. Maybe God woke him up with a dream or a vision. We don't really know. But what it does tell us is that he woke up. And that he didn't wake up his father. He didn't tell his father what he was about to do. But he did wake up his armor bearer. And he says to his armor bearer, let's, let's go through the pass. Right, let's, let's slip through these cliffs. And let's go find the Philistines in that outpost. Let's go pick a fight. Let's go pick a fight and see what God will do. And he gives us this really inspiring speech to this young armor bearer. And the thing about the armor bearer, you've got to understand, Jonathan's pretty young at this point. We don't know exactly how young he was. He's probably 20 or younger. And his armor bearer would have been even younger than that. And his armor bearer, his job is to carry Jonathan's armor. And when you only have two swords, uh, that makes you feel really cool, you know, because you're the guy with the weapons. But the moment that there's battle, the moment that there's any kind of danger, you have to give him up, which is not so great. And he gives him this Inspiring speech, the speech that must have been so inspiring to this young, zealous armor bearer. And he says this, let's go over to that Philistine outpost. Let's go over to that outpost of those uncircumcised men. And he says this, and I love this verse. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. 
nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And that must have been so inspiring to this young armor bearer, except for the prequel, because he says this, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps. Maybe. Let's go pick a fight. Let's step into the situation where the odds are stacked against us, and maybe God will move. Maybe God will deliver us uh, from our enemies. And I don't know about you, but if I'm the armor bearer, that's not that inspiring. Like at that point, I'm like, okay, that's cool. God didn't tell you that we're going to win? Um, you know, wake me when you know. Perhaps. Maybe. But that's not the way he reacted. Here's what it tells us that his armor bearer said in return. He said, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, for I am with you in heart and soul. I love that. So they sneak out, and they leave his father's army. Nobody knows where they're going. They go to engage the enemy, right? to do what nobody else was willing to do, what someone perhaps should have done a long time ago, what someone must do. And somehow, we don't know how, somehow Jonathan seems to know that there is a God moment waiting to be unleashed. He chooses to act, despite having no assurance that God was going to show up, despite God not telling me he's going to have any victory in this matter, despite the risks to his own life, Jonathan makes a choice. He does what nobody else was willing to do, and as a result, we find that God steps in and acts in response to his action and accomplishes the impossible. It tells us in verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they're hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted down to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan says to his armor bearer, climb up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. They climbed up and when they reached the top of the cliff, they both engaged them in battle. And it says the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about a half an acre, and then we find that God steps in. And God responds to his choice and sends an earthquake, a panic, into the people, and they actually begin turning on one another and fighting one another. And so Saul is woken from his sleep. He's been sleeping this entire time. He's woken. The earth is shaking. He hears this building commotion in the camp, and he says, all right, guys, take a poll. We need to figure out who is left from our group because somebody's fighting over there. And so they take this, this poll, Come to find out it's his son. Comes to find out it's his son. His son is over there. He knows how outnumbered he is. And God loves Saul. Saul calls a priest over so that they can pray about it. Right? Because when you don't know what to do, you should pray. Unless you already know what you should do, then you're just wasting time praying. Right? Saul, let's pray about it. You know, commotion is building. His son is over there. Let's pray. Right? The commotion builds to the point. Finally, Saul says, withdraw your hand. And they rush into battle to find that the Philistines have turned on one another. And they're killing one another. And the victory this day is not going to belong to Saul or his men, but to God and to Jonathan, who chose to act when nobody else would, despite having no assurance that God would move. Maybe. Perhaps. It's an incredible story, and it's one we're going to come back to in the next few weeks because there's so much to glean. But it gives us this very different picture of two very, very different men. Very different men. Saul and Jonathan, father and son. Two very different personalities, two very different spiritual lives, two very different sets of values, two different motivations, but both of them faced with a choice. Both of them united in that they both had a choice. You ever find yourself in a situation where you have to make a choice that perhaps you're not 
maybe ready for or comfortable with making, but the situation kind of forces you to make a decision. When Megan and I were, uh, when we first got married, we lived in an apartment for a long time, uh, as a lot of young marrieds have to, especially when you're 21 and 20. Um, and so we had lived in apartments for a really long time. After a few years, we had, we had uh, the chance to finally rent a house. It's going to be our first house. We were really excited because we wanted to get a dog, so we got a dog. We were kind of hiding it in our apartment, you know, as our dog got older. Uh, but we were so excited to have our own space and not have to worry about noise and waking up neighbors and stuff like that. So, but we didn't have a lot, a lot of money because we were young marrieds. Uh, so we got this house down on about, like, 7th and A, about the 7th and A area. And if you know anything about Lincoln... If you're going to invest in real estate, you don't buy down there, right, in 7th and A. Like, I don't want to say ghetto, but let's just say, like, after dark, there's some questionable activity that goes on. So we move in, but we're so excited. We're, we're naive to that fact. We really don't care because it's perfect. It's going to be our house. We're excited. So we scrub that thing down, and we move in. And the very first night that we're living there, at about midnight, we get a knock on the door. And we're like, what in the world? Why is somebody knocking on our door at midnight? And we open it up, and there's a couple kind of shady characters. And they're looking for somebody, you know, name we don't recognize. And uh, we're like, I'm sorry, we just moved in here today. We don't really know, you know, who that is. But uh, we live here now. And the people were obviously not happy about that. They didn't say goodbye or anything. They just turned and walked off. So me and I looked at each other. We're like, that was weird. What was that about? So, you know, we went to bed. A couple hours later, another knock on the door. It's like, what in the world? So I get, put my clothes on and go down there. Open up the door, another like group of, you know, shady characters, right? We'll just leave it at that. Like, and so you're like, hey, what, can I help you? And they're looking for so-and-so. It's like, I'm sorry, I don't know who that is. We just moved in here today. Uh, they don't live here anymore, apparently. Not happy about it. Again, they don't say goodbye. They're not polite. They just turn around and walk away. So they're like, what in the world? So the next day, right, afternoon, get a knock on the door. A couple of police officers are standing there. And they're looking for the same guy. We're like, sorry, we just moved in yesterday. People keep swinging by looking for this person. I don't know what the deal is. And they didn't give us all the details, but it, be, it, like, it was clear that there was some products being sold out of this house that there was a desire for but wasn't exactly legal. And so we're just like, oh, no. Like, this is the house we moved into. And, and so for the next couple of few weeks, like, this continued. People showing up at all hours of the night, very shady characters, and then the things started happening in the neighborhood. Um, there, was a, there was a bomb in one of the houses that they actually had to, like, I don't know how they do it, but they like, cover it, and then they like, kind of detonate it, you know? Um, so that happened, and they had to, like, kick us out of our house for, like, a day. Um, and then there was a stabbing, like, a street away. Like, you could see it from our front porch. And then there was a shooting two blocks down. And I, I'm kind of protective. And so I'm thinking, what did I do to put my wife in this situation? Not a good situation. At night, you just never knew. So when I was out of town, Megan never stayed there. So one night, we're, we're laying in bed. And, and to get the story, like, the, the way the house is laid out is, is the, the entryway. You've got the entryway on the main floor. You've got a living room, an office, kitchen. And the bedrooms were upstairs, two bedrooms. And so we slept up there. And we always kept our door shut. We had, like, a window air conditioning unit because the house didn't have central AC. And it keep the room cold. And so we're sleeping up there one night. And Megan wakes up in the middle of the night. She said, did you hear that? You know, I'm half asleep. I'm like, what? She said, somebody's in the house. It's like, no, somebody is not in the house. Like, that's ridiculous. It's, a, it's an old house. It creaks. Go to sleep, right? So she's like, no, there's somebody in the house. And I do my best as a husband to assure her, there's nobody in our house. This is our house. 
But, but then I lay down, and it occurs to me, that's really not outside the realm of possibility, you know? <laughs> Given the situation, this is possible. And so I'm laying there, and my heart's starting to race, and I'm thinking, what if somebody is in the house? Like, do I get up? Do I go check? You know, whatever. So I'm laying there, and then I hear it. The exact same thing she described. And there's somebody in the house. And, uh, and so my adrenaline starts pumping, and I go into, like, full protection mode. You know, I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? But you know how, like, when you see things in retrospect, it's like 20-20 vision, and you know the decision you would have made, but that's not the decision you did make in the moment? Well, so I jump out of bed, and I toss myself onto Meg, and I said, if you hear me scream your name, you call 911 immediately. And I grabbed, we had this, like, pipe that we cranked the window open with. So I grabbed the pipe, grabbed the dog, and just ran out of the room butt naked. <laughs> Right through the house, no clothes on, screaming at the top of my lungs, where are you at, where are you at, where are you at? And I started making my way through the house from top to bottom. I'm, I'm looking everywhere that you could hide a human body throughout the house. Check the bedrooms, there's nothing. Right? Go down to the next main floor, and I'm screaming this whole time, <laughs> you know, because I want this guy to know, like, I'm coming for him, so he gets out of here. And so I go through the, the, the office area and the kitchen, I'm checking cupboards and everything. I'm just in panic mode. And we get down to the basement, and sure enough, somebody had kicked in our window in the basement, and there was bars of the window, which should have been a sign when we were looking at the house. Like, when there's bars on the window, you don't rent that house. But somebody had actually, like, pried open the bars, like, what looked like a crowbar, and kicked the window in. And looking back, I would have made a very different decision, right? Calling 911 immediately, probably a good decision. Um, if I did have to engage somebody in hand-to-hand -hand combat, next time I'm going to put pants on, you know, because... <laughs> There are certain vulnerabilities that are created with being nude and fighting. Not a good decision. I would have made a very different decision. But in the moment, I had to act. I had to make a choice. And that was my decision. That was my choice. And we actually moved out of there like a week or two, three weeks later. We broke our lease and got, you know, heck out of town. But, you know, the thing is, is that you and I, we, right, we have to make decisions, choices every day. But for most of us, the choices aren't thrust upon us with that kind of urgency, and that kind of clarity where we have to act in the moment. Most of the time, they're often seemingly small, um, insignificant, sometimes even seemingly meaningless choices, uh, but they're choices all the same. And, and what I keep finding is a sad reality is there seems to be something in our human nature that where we almost work to absolve ourselves from responsibility when it comes to the choices that we make. Right? And so we frame the decisions and the choices we make along the way as if it was never our choice to begin with. Right? So you ever hear somebody say something like, I just had no choice. Right? I had no choice. Right? But of course, the reality is, is almost always you do have a choice. Right? You always have a choice, but you don't always like to be held responsible for the, the choices that we make. Right? Nowhere do you see this more clearly than in relationships and specifically in breakups. Right? Anybody here have somebody break up with you at some point or another? Oh, come on. I know there's more of you than that. Okay, well, John. John is, yes, more than once, apparently. <laughs> right? We do this when, in breaking up, we have this down to an art form, right? Where we frame it in such a way like we had no decision. It's not our choice to make, right? The cosmos have aligned, and there's no choice. We must break up, right? And so we say things, for example, like, I care about you. I've loved being together, but I feel that it is so much better. Like, we're supposed to be just friends, right? Can we be just friends, right? Which is really, I mean, you translate it. Right? That really just means this is phase one of me completely eliminating you from my life. Right? But I don't want to say I just don't want to be with you, so we ease into it. Right? For, like another one um, is I just, you know, I, I care about you, 
but I just can't be with you right now. I just can't. Not that I just don't want to. I just can't be with you, which can go one of two ways, right? So it could mean uh, I just can't be with you right now because I'm dating somebody else, and if she sees you, this is going to be tremendously awkward, <laughs> right? right? Or maybe more likely it's something along the lines of, you know, I, I just can't be with you right now because when I see you, I want to throw myself from a parking garage, you know, or put kerosene over your head and light you on fire, right? Harsh, harsh, maybe overstated, but we don't own it and say, you know what, this is not working. We are not made for each other. I really don't like being with you, so let's go our separate ways. We never say that, right? Because this is a spiritual environment, right? This is church. You ever hear this one? I love you. I want to be with you, but I sense that the Lord doesn't want us to be together. Right? You ever hear that? Right, which really translates, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I've been so emasculated that I can't take responsibility for the fact that I don't want to be with you anymore. Right? But we frame it in this very spiritual, spiritual language. And when we do it in our personal lives, right, it can be funny, we can laugh about it, it's goofy, it never ends up well, but we can at least laugh about it. But when we do this in our spiritual lives, right, it's tragic. It's tragic. And we do it all the time. And we talk about our faith in a way as if we can somehow blame God for everything that's happening and absolve ourselves from any responsibility for the choices that we make. So one of the ways that I hear this oftentimes as a friend, as a pastor, is in talking about God's sovereignty. Right? God's sovereignty. You ever hear that? If you didn't grow up in, in church world or whatever, like God's sovereignty basically, it's a biblical truth and it speaks to this reality that God is over all things. He created all, he's over it all, and he has the right and ability to intervene and to act in whatever way he sees fit. Very biblical truth. If you believe in the scriptures, that's what it has to say about God. He is overall. He can do what he wishes, when he wishes. Right? But one of the ways that we often frame our conversations about God and about life and about following Jesus is we say things very like blanketed by saying, well, God is in control. Right? God is in control. Right? I, I didn't like my job and I, I didn't stick it out or I was having a hard time. I had poor performance records and I quit. The writing was on the wall. I don't understand how God works, but, you know, God is in control. But no, it's like the reality is you're just a bad employee, right? You weren't doing your, you weren't good at what you did. You weren't working hard. Or do we do this relationally? And this is perhaps the most frustrating for me. When people say things like, you know, I don't get it. All my coworkers hate me. It must be because of my faith. I'm being persecuted. They don't like me because I'm a Christian. But, you know, I don't always understand, but God is in control. You know, God is sovereign. It's like, no, 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 no. God probably didn't have anything to do with that. You're just a jerk. Right? They don't like you because it's not because you're a Christian. It's because you're a horrible friend. It's because you seem to not care about anybody else but yourself. Right? But we tend to speak about our faith this way. Like God like, has us on strings like puppets and everybody else. And when we make poor decisions that hurt us and hurt other people, we have this tendency to blame it on God. Like God was the reason for that. But that's not what I see in the scriptures. What we see in the scriptures is a God who gives us this ability to choose all the time, to choose to the left or choose to go to the right. God lets us choose, and he never strips us of that ability. Right in the story of Saul and Jonathan, right, God didn't make Saul choose to take a nap and to not engage the enemy or do anything worthwhile. God gave him that choice, and throughout his life, you find he always makes the wrong choice. And he constantly wanders from God, and eventually it costs him his kingdom, it costs him his throne, it costs him his life. But Jonathan, too, had a choice. Jonathan had a choice. God didn't make Jonathan go do anything. 
But he created a situation. There was this presented him with this situation, and Jonathan chose to act. And interestingly, God responded to his action by acting himself. When I read the scriptures, I see this landscape that is painted by our decisions, our choices. That the, the canvas of human history is affected by what we choose, what we choose to do, what we choose not to do, big or small, day by day, moment by moment, no matter how big, no matter how small, it's our choice. Right? Did you have, do you have the Skittles that were on your chair when you walked in? Yeah, can you hold them up? Get them, grab them for a second. You shake them? Give them a little shake for me. I hear the sound of endless choices. All right, if you would, open it up. Open it up, and I want you to grab one and eat it. Go ahead and grab one and eat it. Sam, you don't have to. All right, she's a dentist. I know, I'm sorry. We're not encouraging good dental practice here. All right, what color do you choose? Who chose yellow? Any yellows in the house? Yeah, yeah? I thought yellows were a little bit more enthusiastic than that. How about oranges? Any oranges in the house? Yeah, my favorite color. How about greens? Greens, yeah. Hello, my wife's favorite color. I like green. How about purple? Purple, yeah. Passion purple. How about red? Yes. Okay, so why, why did you choose the color that you did? The first one on top? It's the first one you could get? You don't date like that, do you? <laughs> Who else? What else did you choose? Your favorite color? It's a great, great choice. Which one was that? Purple. Anybody else? Tastes good? All right, that's a good, good reason to choose. Any other decisions? Is the last one left? <laughs> so you chose to dig in a little early, or you ate really fast. <laughs> now, hold on a second. We're in church. Don't tell me that none of you stopped to pray about which Skittle God would have you eat. Nobody? Nobody prayed about it? Of course not, right? Because you're faced with a decision. You're faced with a choice. You didn't have to think about it. Right? You made a choice. But the reality is that God created you and I to choose. It is a part of who we are. It is a part of our core identity as humans. Right? You may not be familiar with the whole Bible and biblical narrative, but the human narrative, the biblical story, begins with this exact context. Right in the, gar- in the garden, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in it. Right? Everything from... You know, rainbows, to sunsets, to fish, to trees, to fruit, you name it. And he puts, God, he puts man and woman right smack dab in the middle. And he says, man, it is good. And then he says this, chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden except for one. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Right? So God creates this paradise. He creates a Garden of Eden, which literally translates, the word means pleasure. Creates this incredible landscape of lush fruit and vegetation, and he says, go crazy. His opening declaration to humanity is, you are free. I created this for you. Enjoy it. Right, part of it, what it means to be human, part of God's intention for your life, what he desires for you, what he created you for, is to be free. And to be free to make any number of decisions for better or for worse. But of course, we tend to betray ourselves, don't we? 
right? Just as Adam and Eve did, right? Little, little voice whispering in their ear, no, 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 you're not free. You're not free. If you really want to be free, you need to divorce yourself from what God would have you do, right? Eat from this tree. Yeah, God said not to do it, but see, he's, 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 he's fencing you in, right? You're in a prison. Right? You need to divorce yourself from that, right? Choose for yourself. If you could just get away from God, then you would finally be free, right? And we buy into this mentality a lot, right? We, and we start to think that, you know what? To be Christian, to follow Jesus, to come under what God would have for us is actually to create fewer choices for us, but nothing could be further from the truth, right? When we make selfish, destructive decisions, that doesn't give us more choices. That gives us less choices, right? So you have somebody who, if you lose your temper, right? And you have an altercation with a neighbor or a friend or somebody down at a bar, Right, and you beat this guy up and put him in the hospital, right? Good for you, you're a man, you know, or whatever. But you're going to prison, right? And that's going to be on your record. You don't have more choices now, you have fewer choices now, right? If you're a 15 year old girl and you're in a relationship with some guy and you're having unprotected sex outside of uh, marriage and you get pregnant, you don't have more choices. You have less choices. And you can choose to get an abortion, you can do that. But it's not over the moment you get an abortion, right? You can talk to anybody who's had an abortion. That follows you. That affects what you're able to do moving forward. It affects the the choices you make affect the choices moving forward. You can choose to have that baby. But again, you have fewer choices, more responsibility. And this is what we find in the garden. And this is what we find throughout the, the scripture narrative. Is that divorced from God, apart from what he would have desire would desire for us. Making choices that don't honor him, but rather serve ourselves and what we want, don't create for us more choices. They don't make us more free. They make us less free. They put us actually in bondage to sin. God creates Adam and Eve in the garden. The whole world is their playground. I mean, this is their chance. This is the one time Eve can say, I am the hottest woman on the planet. Right? This is the only time in human history Adam can say, I am God's gift to women. Right? <laughs> they have one another. The world is their pro- playground. And God says, go. It's yours. You are free. Choose what you will. Just don't choose this one thing. That anything else is yours. See, I would submit to you that the most spiritual activity that you and I engage in is choosing. It is the act of making a choice. And sometimes we over-spiritualize things, and sometimes we under-spiritualize things. But generally, when we're talking about spiritual things, we're talking about things like prayer, and we're talking about reading the Bible, we're talking about going to church or singing songs. And those are all well and good, but those are all united by one common activity, the most preeminent human activity in the whole human story, and that is the act of choice. Right? The one thing that separates and differentiates us from every other animal, right? whether it be cats or, or dogs or birds or giraffes, whatever have you, is that we get to choose. Right? We get to make a choice day in or day out. God says, here's life, here's death. Here's the tree of life. Here's the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you get to choose. You get to choose. Every day, every moment, we make choices. But the hard part is, is that for most of us, many of the choices that we make seem about incident, as incidental as a skittle. Right? Small Seemingly insignificant, seemingly meaningless. But none of them, all of them together, are the, create the sum total of our lives. See, I don't, I don't know a whole lot, but what I do know is that the choices that you make today 
will create the future that you live in tomorrow. So every choice is significant. And if you don't like your life today, if you don't like where you're at, if you don't like who you are, you need to look back because it's choices that have brought you here. And for some of us, it's not the choices that we made, right? For some of us, we carry the pain and the wounds and the scars of destructive decisions that were made by other people. Or some of you are walking around with the shrapnel of other people's poor decisions because our decisions affect other people. Right? They create the world in which we live. And so when we choose to love, that has a reaction that affects other people. When we choose to harbor bitterness and anger and hate, that again, that affects other people. And you may actually at times been angry and bitter at God because of other destructive choices that people made that really probably had absolutely nothing to do with God. God doesn't strip us of our ability to choose. He constantly offers us the ability to choose. Deuteronomy 30 is a great chapter. And there's a a portion beginning in verse 11 that I want to read for you. And this is such a great embodiment of God's posture towards us day in and day out. And it says this, beginning in verse 11. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven and get it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us that we may obey it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, decrees and laws, and then you will live And increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live in the land you are crossing. This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. So one of the most beautiful things about this incredible God-given capacity to choose is that Jesus is always just a choice away. He is always within reach. And he gives us the choice completely. Our ability to choose is a reflection of our creator. And the story of the gospel, the message of the gospel, is that not only do we have a choice, God had a choice, and God chose you. And God chose you, and God chose you, and God chose you. But the reality is that God doesn't force that onto us. Instead, he chooses us, and he waits for us to choose him in return. And he doesn't ever strip that away from us. And so if we insist on living a life full of selfishness and self-serving and sin, and we create a hell for ourselves, God gives us that. He lets us stay there. But the beauty of it is, is that if life is what we want, this full abundant life that can only be found in Jesus Christ, that it is there for the taking every moment of every day, the choice is ours. And if you're here this morning and you've never made that choice, you have to understand that this is the choice, the most important choice, the choice that affects all others, is what we will choose in relationship to God. Right? When we choose this 
knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that represents disconnecting ourselves from what God would desire for us. That would choose self-service and even self-destruction. Right? Or will we choose the tree of life? Jesus Christ, right, who hung on the real tree of life for you and for me. And if you've never made that decision to trust your life to Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do that. Because that is a decision that affects every single other decision. And no number of right decisions makes up for that one. That's the big one. And so I want to do this morning is as we bow together in prayer, is that if you have never consciously decided to trust your life to Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do that and give you a choice to do that. And it's nothing, there's nothing magical in the words, but it's a, on a heart level, it's a choice that you make, that God offers us. So if you would bow your heads with me, we'll close in prayer. If you've never made this decision and you want to trust your life to Jesus Christ this morning, you just repeat after me or put it in your own words. Lord God, I've made a lot of bad choices along the way. I've made choices that have hurt me and choices that have hurt others. But God, this morning, right now, in my own sin, with my own knowledge of past mistakes and present mistakes, God, I choose you. God, I choose you. And I thank you for choosing me. And God, I may not understand the implications of everything that it means to follow you and to worship you. But what I do know, I want. And I commit now to do everything that I can to choose you and to serve you with my life. Father God, I pray for everybody in this room. I pray for us as a community, day by day, moment by moment, as we step into situations that demand a choice, a life or death, selfishness or selflessness, love or hate. And Father God, that I pray that we would be a community that has moved to love, to selflessness, to serve you, but to serve other people and to love them well. God, as we come before you in prayer, I ask that you would enlighten us and, and help us to see the areas in our lives where we have been choosing poorly. Help us see those areas that we need to change we have been choosing. Father God, I ask that you would convict our hearts in those areas and that you would give us the courage to choose you, to choose the life that you offer, to choose to live in the freedom that can only be found in the cross. Father God, we give you our hearts and our souls and our hands and our feet. God, we ask that this would be a church that longs to serve you and to serve others, that this would be a place where people come to experience the life and the freedom and the grace and the love that is in you and you alone. But God, we come before you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.